and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Ozband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Pei Aleph, page 81. So the interesting bit here on Ahmed Aleph, where it says, Manch might like the itle midrash ketubah. How did you hear, or who did you hear that it was from this opinion that one is going to darsh and is going to expound upon the ketubah, the specifics of the ketubah, and then by that, by doing so, they they infer or derive, I guess really it's infer, halachot from the language, like in the same way that you would do this with biblical verses, right? To, text from the Torah. So the person who says this, right, that's the question, who says this, Beit Shammai. Now, we have to come back to understand how it is that Beit Shammai says to do this. It was of the opinion that said, where he said that a document that is ready to be collected is considered collected, meaning it was already collected. What does that mean? That you come to collect them from the from any kind of contract, really. So then, in this case, it would be the ketubah, and then once she's come to collect the ketubah, then he cannot claim that he's acting as his. And this is going back to the case previously on the daf uh, as his brother's heir. Now. I'm less interested in the particulars of the case that it's being referred to, that it's, you know, coming on the heels of explaining as this fact that once you've got this ketubah, now we're going to, we're going to establish this as something that you can, as I say, that you can darshan off of, that you can extrapolate, um, extrapolate or expound upon the text of it. So we've got, the Gemara goes on to say, the proof of this is learned in a Mishnah. So there were husbands, there were husbands who were suspected of being, um, of having affairs. What happens until they they died before the the wives ever even drank from the sota water? Right. This is you know it's a it's kind of an unfair citation from the Mishnah because it kind of dies right in to the vocabulary and context of the Masachat Sota. Namely, what is that procedure? The, there's a couple that's suspected of adultery, meaning there's two people who are married to other people, who, or at least the woman is, and she is suspected of adultery. And but there's no proof. So the 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 way the Torah describes it, right? She has they just to drink from this bitter the bitter waters, and then depending on what happens, meaning either she kind of explodes and dies, or she does not, in which case she's determined to be innocent. Right, like this whole procedure is referred to here in just a few words. So let's read them again. If the husbands died before they drank, now it's not the husbands who drink, right? It's the the women who drink. So we're talking about concerns about husbands um, of women who are being who are suspected of being unfaithful. It's not that they are proven to be so, but the husbands died. Then Bechamai says, listen, the husband died. Give them the money for the marriage contract from the ketubah, and they don't drink. And Beit Hillel says, they have to choose, meaning either they're going to drink or they don't take the ketubah, meaning either they are um, playing this, you know, putting themselves out there as, um, you know, being willing to, to to drink from the waters to say, no, I did not have an affair. I did not 
um, I was not unfaithful to my husband, and therefore I should be entitled to get my ketubah. And presumably, then when they would drink, they would be, in fact, you know, the the spiritual reckoning would say that yes, indeed, they are innocent and would get their ketubah. Or alternatively, they don't have to drink, but then they also don't get the ketubah. I feel like Beit Hillel is um, paying more attention to the context of the Sota scenario as compared to Beit Shammai, who's looking at this, I think, in a much more literalistic way that says, well, the husband is no longer alive, so the phenomenon of being a Sota is no longer relevant. You know, get t- take your ketubah as you would have under other regular circumstances. Um, so now the Gemara, and this goes into this question of what is the, you know, paying attention to the careful wording, um, that's exactly what happens. The Gemara says, Oshotot, meaning either, either the Either they're going to drink, you know, either they drink or they get the, they get their, they don't get the ketubah or they drink. And the parent wants to know, you know, how can they be drinking? There's no husband to go home to. And the Gemara here cites a verse from Bamidbar, from the book of Numbers, Vevi ha'ish et ishto el ha'kohen. And this is exactly the story of the Sota woman. How does the procedure work? The husband brings the wife to the Kohen. If there's no husband, meaning there's supposed to be a husband bringing the wife to the Kohen. So if there's no husband, then how can you fulfill this verse at all? Ella, so what, how, what's Beit Hill going to answer? So Beit Hill's rationale is simply, since they aren't drinking, they, ha- they likewise have no husband to tell them or to insist that they drink the water. So they don't get the ketubah um, just in case there really was some uh, affair going on, but but really it does. It's not. It doesn't have to be as hedging your bets kind of thing as I might have thought it was on the first read. Um, I like the fact that the Gemara that's talking about darsh that explicating the text is then itself explicated, so to speak, right? In terms of. Um, being very careful about what the language says here and understanding, kind of delving into the understanding of Beit Hill by virtue of the words that are used in the way uh, the the opinion is expressed. Yeah, and it's an interesting passage because Beit Shammai's, you know, opinion actually makes a lot more logical sense. Like, it's really Beit Hill who needs to be sort of defended here. Or at least use your thumbs, right? Like, I think by the end of this, I was convinced that Beit Hillel's view again made sense to me, like strong, it was a strong case, but I had to get to the end because the Gemara does use its thumbs, right? Meaning to say, well, if you think this, then you have to conclude that. Okay, yeah, you're right. I'm now convinced. As opposed to Beit Shammai that I think was, as you say, kind of intuitive. Okay. I'm going to move on here to another interesting case uh, that gets presented um, and, uh, you know, Abai and Rabbi were, you know, discussing, and it says, Shlachli Rabbi Abai, the Yad Rav Shmaya Bar Zera, right? So Rabbi sends Abaye this question uh, by, you know, in the hands of Rav Shmaya Bar Zera. Umini na ketuba Can the marriage contract of Yavama be collected during his lifetime, meaning the Yavam's lifetime? So remember that the Avama's marriage contract, if she enters into marriage with the Avam, the Ketubah, though, gets paid from the first husband's property, which the Avam basically inherits 
by going through this process of Yibum. And so they bring a Brisa here to prove their point. Vahatanya, Rabbi Abba Omer. Rabbi Abba says, Sha'alti at Sumkus. I asked Sumkus. Haratseshim Korbenich Nase Achim. Ketzad Hu Oseh. Let's say the Yavan wants to sell his brother's property. But the question is, he can't because his brother's property are basically mortgaged to the Yavama, right? In other words, they're going to use that property if they were to get divorced to pay off the Ketubah. So basically, he can't do anything with that property, right? What should he do? Im Kohen, Huya says, face. So if he's a Kohen, right? And we'll see why this is important because the idea is he wouldn't be allowed to remarry his the Yavama. The Yavam if would not be allowed to divorce the Yavama and then remarry her. He should prepare a feast for her right after Yavam takes place. And during the feast, basically persuade her to allow to allow him to sell the brother's property. Im Yisrael, but if he's a Yisrael, who again you could remarry a woman that you divorce, right? Megaresh beget biachzir. He should divorce her, right? Basically, you know, at that point, he'll pay her whatever the sum of the, you know, ketubah is. And then the rest of that property doesn't have a mortgage on anymore. And then he can go ahead and sell it. And then he can go ahead and remarry her, okay? Really kind of a bizarre setup. So it's also interesting to me, this doesn't appear in Yavamos, right? Because we've been emphasizing this concept appeared in Yavamos as well. That again, the ketubah gets paid from the first husband's property, but then in a way, the Yavam doesn't really have access to that property. Right? So if you want to think, right, that the ketubah can be collected during the Yavam's lifetime, then, you know, he basically should put aside part of the property that goes to the top of the ketubah. And then the rest of it, let him sell. In other words, what, what what is this talking about? Like, why does he have to do this whole thing of like divorcing her? Like, in other words, just take out of the property what he owes her and then like let him do whatever he wants with the rest of the property. Just make sure he keeps some property or something of the brother so that he, if he needs to give her stupa, he has it. According to your reasoning, right? The lutva mimat Right? Actually, he could raise a difficulty from this Mishnah. So we'd seen this concept before that it's not okay when a ketubah is involved. You can't just say, like, here's your 200 out, your 200 zuzim for the, for the ketubah. Really needs to come out of his property. You can't sort of have it as like uh, accessible cash. It's not supposed to be part of your cash flow. It's not supposed to be cash that's accessible right away. It's really supposed to be, if it needs to be paid out, it's part of the husband's property that's paid out. So we learned this mission that said, right, you're not allowed to say, here's your money, right? Like, I have your money easily accessible for your ketubah. Rather, it's property marriage contract. So why can't we do the same thing? In other words, that's the question. Why does he have to do this whole thing to get divorced? Even use this mission as a proof. Like, just do what, what he could do. So the Gemara says the Tan and the Mishnah there is teaching us some good advice, right? That basically, you know, right? To make sure, you, want, you know, that there always is the amount of the Ketubah, okay? You you don't make sure that you don't, like, leave out, even though, like, 
you maybe want to make sure you always have that money available, right? Um, it, it's not something that you should do. You shouldn't have the money there. But read what 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 the Mishnah is saying carefully, right? What what the Gemara is answering her is Hatam Eitzatoba. That Mishnah is a, just a good advice. It's not a halacha. If you wanted to have the money available, you could. They're just telling you an Eitzatoba. It's not a good thing to do. Right? Be as so if you do not say so, right, that it's just good advice, seva diktani, right? The end of this Mishnah teaches right? The end of that Mishnah taught a man may not say to his wife, your marriage contract is placed on the table, right? Rather, all his property is mortgaged. So if he wants to sell, right? So everything is basically it, it is mortgaged, okay? So if he wants to sell it, he could go in hell and sell it. Ella eats a tova kamash malan. So rather, the Tan is just teaching us like a good piece of advice. Hachanami eats a tova kamash malan. So here too, with the Yava, with the Yavama, this case also, it's just it's good advice. It's not that he can't sell it or that you can't pay it out. But the better way to do it might be, this might be the way to do it, right? That he divorces her and sells the property that way. So the Gemara says, okay. So this statement of Rabbi Abba in the name of, of Sumkos is still difficult. In other words, why would it still be necessary for him to divorce her? Because you are saying he could just set aside the amount of money that he needs. So Rabbi Abba nami lo kasha. So the Gemara says, this teaching of Rabbi Abba is also not difficult, Right? Because the reason one cannot do so is not that he can't designate a sum, it's rather Mishum Eva, but it's due to Eva. Eva is like sort of hatred, right? That in other words, particularly in the case of the Yavam and the Yavama, if the Yavam were to set aside that money, the Yavama is like, remember, it's already a bad situation, right? The husband died, the brother died, she needs to marry this Yavam. It's unclear what everybody's motivation is here. So if he were to set aside that money, it, it may lead the Obama to think like, oh, he hates me. You know, he's he, he would if he had his way, he would divorce me. So, you know, what's great about this passage is with the Eitzat Toba and even Rabbi Abba's statement, this is like the first time that like we got into like the emotional piece a little bit. Right. Like it's not about whether it's prohibited or allowed. Here we're seeing a few teachings that are like what's the right thing to do to make everybody feel good about these situations? And so, I don't know, it's the first time that we've seen sort of like emotion come into play. They're not using the word emotion, but it, it's sort of like an emotional observation about what the best way is to handle something as opposed to being straightforwardly legalistic of like mutar asor. So I think that every time that we've seen them go into this like, the recommendation zone, let's call it that, right? As compared to mutar asur, as opposed to strict halacha, this is what must be done in the circumstances. We've seen other areas in halacha. I mean, even going back to psachim, right? There, we've seen different times when, which I probably can't recall in great detail now, but where the Gemara did present the recommendation, right? Meaning that this is what you should do, or this is what you want to do, or wouldn't it be better to do it this way? And I, every time I'm struck by how not, how unexpected that is, because 
we relate to the Gemara and Halacha and Halacha as being much more uh, definitive and that you take your case to the rabbi to ask, what am I supposed to do in this case? You don't expect to be told, well, I'll give you some good advice, right? You're expected, at least within the Orthodox zone, right? There's a right and a wrong behavior to follow. And the answer is not always. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's a little bit we're seeing here. And again, interesting, this doesn't appear in Yavamos. Like Yavamos was so not emotional and all of a sudden it's here in Ketubot. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's on purpose. I mean, Ketubot by nature is much more about protecting women, right? Like that's really what the Ketubah is. So maybe that's why it appears here where Yibam just felt so off <laughs> for everybody. I don't know. Even after we got past the big stages of the charts, I feel like it's still much more a matter of, t- it was, I felt at the time, that it was much more a matter of taking the case and exploring all of the different ways that can come to pass, let's say. And here in Ketubot, I mean, and so it felt much more mathematical. And Ketubot feels much more practical, um, where the cases themselves that feel like, oh, but come on, would that really happen? And then you feel like, well, you know, it really might happen. I, I agree with you. I think that's a great observation. And I think part of that is something we noted in Yuvamos is you get a sense throughout Yuvamos, Chazal don't like Yibam. They're, they're uncomfortable with it, right? And I think best said by the statement of Abishal about Yibam that, you know, we shouldn't do it because nobody has the right intention. So I, I think that's a good observation. Ketubot has a practicality to it uh, that's very evident with the cases that it brings. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rankest reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Town the Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachi Ketubot, DAP Peva, page 86. Well, we're still in the middle of our discussion about how certain types of debts get paid, and we have examples of this. But in the middle of Amidal, we actually have an interesting statement by Amemar, which doesn't use a story to illustrate a point, but instead he gives a ruling. So we have a case here where there's a man who owns, owes money to the ketubah of his wife and also a creditor, a balchov. And he has land and he has money. So the question is, who does he give the land to? Who does he give the money to? So for the Baal Chov, he's going to give money. For the wife, he's going to give land. And so the Gemara explains, this is according to each one's law. What, what does this mean? The Baal Chov, the creditor, gave him money, so he should be returned to it in money. But a woman, when she enters a marriage, she doesn't give anything. She's not giving him money, right? And she understands that her ketubah could be paid off of a lien on the uh, land. And so therefore, she gets paid in land. Now the Gemara asks the question, right? Or Amemar is continuing and saying, Let's say this person only owns a plot of land and can only pay one debt. Who should he pay? You pay the Baal We don't pay the woman. Now the question is why. The reason for this is that we say as much as a man wants to marry, a woman even more so wants to be married. What the Gemara is basically saying here, and this is not something that I think 
you know, feels great to modern sensibilities. But basically, a man, a woman doesn't enter her marriage in order to collect her ketubah. So it's better to give the money to the creditor so he doesn't lo- lose out. And it, if we didn't pay him, it would discourage people from lending money. The woman will basically, she'll just have to deal. Amar le Rav Papa le Rav Chama. So Rav Papa says to Rav Chama, Vaidai da amritu mashme de Rava. Is it correct that you said this in the name of Rava? Haiman de maske bezuze. Right, with somebody who owns, who owes money, v'isle arya, and he has land. Va'ata bachov v'katava mine. And the creditor comes and basically demands, the bachov demands money, right? And v'amar uh, leh, and the, uh, and the, the debtor says to the Balchov, Zil shakul me'arya. He says, fine, go and sell the land and you can get your money. I'll give you the land. I'm not going to give you money because I don't have money, but I'll give you my land. You can sell it and then you get your money. Amrina and lay, right? Uh, so the question is, do we say that this is really, you know, uh, uh, so we say to him, right? Zil zabinat va'ati have lay, right? Go and sell the land and give him money, right? Do we actually say that this is actually the solution to this? Amr lay, la. Right? He says, no, I never said this in the name of Rava. That's not actually the solution that I would come up with with this. So Rav Papa says, tell me the incident itself. Tell me exactly what happened, right? That it would cause that this opinion would be attributed to Rava. So Rav Chama says to him, right? It's the debtor who attached his money to a non-Jew. In other words, he possesses, he has the money, Right, but he claims that the money actually belongs to a non-Jew, and it can't be demanded. Who Since this man acted improperly, right? He gave his money to a non-Jew, and he can't pay the person back correctly. The the chachamim acted improperly with him, and they say, "Okay, you think your money's not free? Well, you can sell your land." So, in other words, they act improperly with him. It's not that this should be a standard. This is really a unique case. So now Rav Kahana says to Rav Papa, According to your opinion, right, you say that the repayment to a creditor is actually a mitzvah. Amar, and so therefore if the debtor says, right, I don't want to do this mitzvah. What would be the halacha? In other words, is there no obligation to basically repay a loan other than to perform a mitzvah? What if somebody says, I don't actually want to perform a mitzvah? In other words, Rav Kahan is sort of calling a Papa by saying, if you're going to call paying a debt a mitzvah, someone could just say, I don't want to do this mitzvah, right? My, Amar right? So he says to him, Tanina, we already learned this in a brisa. Right? So, when this statement was said that basically you would get, here the Brysa here is talking about getting 40 lashes, okay, by getting Malkud. This is when we talk about a negative mitzvah, right, a lotase. But when it comes to positive mitzvah, right, like somebody to do the mitzvah of sukkah and he doesn't do it, or to do the mitzvah of lulav and he doesn't do it, right? Makinoto nafsho. The court actually can strike him as many times as they want. They could do more than the typical amount of malkud until his soul departs in order to make him actually do the mitzvah. So in other words, based on this b'risa, what Rav Papa says is, yes, 
since payment of the debt is actually a positive mitzvah, we can force somebody to pay who does not do it. So we basically have a series here, starting with the statement of Amemar, then uh, this you know question about whether Rava said made the statement about what to do in this particular case where the money is not available, and then finally this exchange with Rav Kahan and Rav Papa, which all revolve around forcing somebody to pay their debt and how do we force them to pay their debt. Um, first of all, I think this shows the power of the Jewish courts at that time, right? Like today, the Beitin would not necessarily be able to do that. Um, but it's very interesting to see, you know, how they went about these different cases. This obviously must have come up. This is purely practical. I don't think in any way this is boundary pushing. Um, and that they really did have to force people to sort of pay their debts. But the fact that sort of the payment of the debt is viewed as a positive mitzvah, I think is also very interesting and that it's within the court's authority, right? A person isn't just to let's say, hey, I don't feel like doing sukkah. I don't feel like doing lulav. I don't feel like doing, um, you know, paying a debt. It's within the court's authority to actually force people to do positive commandments, which I think is really something we have not thought about or talked about before. I think we usually look at it as like the court enforces not transgressing something. But here we can use the court uh, as a power to fulfill something.